episode of the Think Wildlife podcast. Today I interview Alice from the Global Initiative to End Wildlife Crime. She is the policy advisor at this organization and is trained as a lawyer from Italy. Welcome Alice, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast here. Thank you, thank you Anish and uh, honestly thank you on behalf of the uh, entire Global Initiative to End Wildlife Crime for for your podcast, I think it's it's a great platform uh, to discuss conservation issues and, and projects. And I recently listened to an episode that you did with uh, Ian Redmond, one of our good colleagues from Rebalance Earth, and I found that very interesting. So again, uh, a personal thank you for, for the work that you're doing. I, I imagine it's taken a lot of time um, and energy. So uh, congrats on that. Thank you so much for the kind words. So my first question for you is that how much is wildlife crime worth globally? Yeah, so obviously being an illicit industry, it's very hard to come up with exact um, estimates. But um, um, we know that it is one of the biggest illegal activities worldwide. Um, some say that it's the fourth uh, behind only arms, drugs and human trafficking. But regardless of whether it's the fourth, fifth or sixth, um, there's a little bit of uh, controversy around that. Um, we know that it is growing and it is um, increasingly concerning. Um, UNEP and Interpol estimate the illegal wildlife trade, so just wildlife not uh, including illegal logging and fishing, to be between 7 and 23 billion US dollars. Um, and uh, obviously, again, when you do include illegal logging and fishing that now really rises um, exponentially. Beyond driving species lots, what are some broader ecological, social and economic implications of the illegal wildlife trade? Yes, so obviously um, species loss is is the most obvious, right? Because we know from from recent um, uh, reports that the IPBS has estimated that um, over 1 million species are currently at risk of extinction in the coming decades, um, and, and many within uh, just a few decades if we if we don't um, rapidly change course. Um, and there are some of the most recent examples. Let's, you know, just think about the, the northern white rhino um, after the death of Sudan, uh, as, I'm, as I'm, I'm sure you're aware of. In 2019, there's only two female um, northern white rhinos left. And that's an uh, unfortunate consequence of poaching and um, the illegal wildlife trade. And then obviously thinking of species that are not extinct yet, uh, but on, on uh, the road to extinction, unfortunately, um, there's the vaquita. We have about 10 left. The numbers are uncertain there as well. So species lost is unfortunately one of the most obvious ones, but then it's not the only one uh, at the ecological level. Um, obviously, there's a there's a matter of um, ecosystem imbalance, because when you remove key species from from their habitats, it can affect all other species uh, by causing, for example, overpopulation of certain prey species and then as a, as a result overgrazing. So um, ecosystem imbalance is another one. And last but not least on the ecological um, impact is the introduction of non-native, potentially uh, invasive species, right? That can further disrupt ecosystem. And that's 
honestly, that's also um, sometimes an, an unintended result of the legal wildlife trade, because many times people um, will buy exotic pets and release them in the wild without realizing that they are causing the introduction of a potentially invasive species. Um, and another um, significant consequence is on human and animal health. And this is, again, one of the other objective of the global initiative, because we know that um, the illegal wildlife trade in particular, but again, uh, there are some concerns about the legal trade as well, uh, brings humans and wildlife into close, um, unnatural, unmonitored contact. It bypasses veterinary protocols and, uh, and uh, biosecurity controls. And it increases the, the risk of zoonotic disease emergence. And this is especially true when you think about species uh, that are considered to be high risk, high risk species. Um, there's some good scientific evidence um, regarding how bats, rodents, and primates are, are particularly uh, high risk and should be, um, you know, we, we should be particularly mindful of those species. And then um, another big category that I would describe when it comes to impact of wildlife trafficking is the social uh, and economic impact, because you, you can't obviously um, ignore the fact that when you when you exploit certain species and drive them to the verge of extinction, then the communities that have historically um, benefited from the sustainable and legal use of those species um, will no longer be able to do so. And on top of that, obviously, uh, there are economic opportunities like the ones uh, linked to wildlife tourism um, and other legal activities. Um, so plenty, plenty of, um, of um, unfortunately, unintended and dangerous consequences. Oh, and um, I, I was about to forget, but obviously there are, there are security concerns as well, because wildlife trafficking um, is often linked to organized crime, and the revenue of wildlife trafficking can then be channeled into um, illegal activities and can fund criminal networks. So again, the list is long, and I feel like I've only really mentioned the, the main ones. Thanks for that. So you mentioned a global initiative to end wildlife trade. So what is the idea behind this? Yes. Yeah, so, so the global initiative, uh, which I joined in early 2021, um, was created in June 2020. So during the the pandemic, uh, it seems like a lifetime ago, but it was only just uh, two, three years ago. Um, and it was launched, it's chaired by the former Secretary General of, of CITES, so John Scallon, uh, who I hope you'll have the opportunity to, to chat with soon. And it's hosted by an NGO, um, a Hong Kong-based NGO called ADM Capital Foundation. Uh, they are our, our, um, our hosts, and we're very grateful for the, all the support that they have provided us through the years. And we're also supported by 32 international champions. So these are um, private sector representatives, other NGOs, industry associations that are committed to advancing our objectives in uh, using their, their sphere of influence. And the initiative was created to address 
two legal reforms that we thought uh, were needed in the international uh, in international law. The first and probably the one that um, you're most familiar with and we're probably better known for is the uh, adoption of a global agreement to tackle wildlife trafficking. And our um, idea um, has always been uh, that that should be an additional protocol to the UNTOC. The UNTOC is the main international instrument to tackle uh, transnational organized crime. And um, the idea is to add a protocol to the three existing protocols on human uh, trafficking, migrant smuggling, and firearms manufacturing and trafficking. And in uh, starting from 2021, I believe May 2021, uh, a number of uh, countries and a number of presidents have made very powerful statements in support of an additional protocol to the UNTOC. So Gabon and Costa Rica, followed by Angola, Malawi, and more recently, um, the European Commission has also uh, expressed a level of support for uh, a global agreement of this kind, because in the action plan of last year, again, uh, not sure everyone is familiar with that, but in uh, November, 2022, um, the European Commission um, released their revised action plan uh, to tackle wildlife trafficking. And in that document, in that action plan, there's a reference to um, the, there's, there's a commitment for the EU to promote an additional protocol to the UNTOC covering wildlife trafficking. Um, and then finally, the most recent was the most recent expression of support was from the American Bar Association in February of this year. Um, so this is our first uh, pillar, our first objective. And the second one is the inclusion. And again, coming uh, from the, you know, the era of COVID-19 and really this awakening that people have had regarding um, the dangers of epidemics and pandemics. The second pillar, the second objective is the inclusion of public and animal health criteria in international processes and conventions. And um, this second one is a bit trickier because we initially um, wanted to, and we, we initially proposed a number of amendments to CITES CITES being the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species, um, the main, really the main international instrument to regulate trade in, in wild animals and plants at the international level. And uh, again, the idea initially was to amend that convention to include um, public and animal health criteria in the decision-making processes of the convention. But we have since moved on from that approach um, for a couple of reasons. One being that um, there wasn't enough buy-in from state state parties. And another that other members of the civil society, so fellow NGOs, fellow organizations, were concerned that opening up the convention to renegotiations might lead to some unintended um, changes in the convention. So we have since moved on from that approach and we're now focusing on uh, uh, the so-called pandemic instrument, which is uh, um, an international instrument on the uh, prevention 
preparedness and response to um, next outbreaks, to future outbreaks uh, that's being uh, negotiated under the auspices of the WHO. So uh, we're focusing on that instrument and we're trying our best to contribute to those negotiations to ensure that uh, there's a strong focus on preventing pandemics at the source um, and um, and to ensure that the instrument addresses thoroughly the risks of illegal and legal wildlife trade when it comes to um, yeah animal and, and pub, animal health and public health risks. So sorry for the long-winded answer, but um, it's always uh, it's always tough to summarize really uh, our two objectives in in just a few words. So what have been some of the biggest challenges while tackling a lot of this legal framework around illegal wildlife? Yes, so um, we haven't, especially with the global agreement to tackle wildlife trafficking, I have to say we haven't encountered um, any strong resistance from um, member states. Um, in fact, um, recently in in May of 2020, you released a report summarizing some of the member states' views on this protocol. So they were asked, what, what are your views on the potential of an additional protocol to the UNTOC covering wildlife trafficking? So this global agreement that we've been talking about. And over half of the responding states were supportive of this approach. So um, we haven't necessarily found a lot of resistance from member states, but there are surely some countries and some governments um, that would prefer a different approach. It's a minority, um, but there are some member states that would prefer to focus on fully implementing the, the instruments that are already available. Um, and then there are other member states that would prefer to have a global agreement tackling all environmental crime. So not just wildlife trafficking, but other environmental crimes such as um, uh, illegal mining, uh, waste trafficking, and so on. So um, again, not a whole lot of resistance, but I would say the main challenge is that reforming international law is always a painfully long process. And the implementation at the national level um, is, is just as long. And so we are um, aware of that. And we know that we're sort of playing the, the, the long-term game in that sense. But we think that this is a, a very necessary reform. What do you think is the way forward for the global initiative to end wildlife? What are you guys working upon in the next couple of years? Well, um, we will continue to support member states that um, um, have called for a global agreement uh, to tackle wildlife trafficking. By the end of this year, we, um, the UNODC should release a report, an updated report that summarizes member states' views on uh, the potential of a global agreement. So we're really looking forward to, to that. The first report, again, in May of 2023 was um, was a hopeful one, uh, and uh, it, it gave us, you know, um, a, a reason to to keep up the the good fight, uh, as you would say. 
And we're looking forward to the next one to to seeing how the momentum continues to hopefully grow. Um, we're also working, as I as I mentioned, on the pandemic instrument. And uh, as you may know, the idea is that negotiations for that instrument should end by June of 2024. And for us, uh, the priority there is really to make sure that the instrument um, is as focused as possible on prevention. Because the current draft, um, unfortunately, focuses mostly on post-outbreak actions. So what do you do after an outbreak? Um, and we want to uh, we want the, the instrument to focus on preventing pandemics at the source uh, and and do you know uh, it's best to minimize risk the risk of spillovers. Um, and we've uh, offered a number of suggestions to uh, member states in, in in that regard. So we want the instrument to address the role of the wildlife trade, both legal and illegal, as well as live animal markets. Um, in in the emergence of zoonotic diseases, and we want we we suggest that that's done by committing member states to place uh, much tougher regulations on the taking, the trading, the selling, um, the consumption of wild animals, um, especially high risk animals. We you know I mentioned uh, some of some of the for uh, bats, rodents, following scientific evidence on that. And we also uh, suggested that the instruments supports um, the transition away from high-risk activities to support alternative livelihoods. Um, we are also um, supporters of what has now become known as the One Health approach. Again, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, and it's it's a simple but very powerful concept, which uh, is that the health of humans, animals, and the environment that they live in are are linked, right? And so it's essential to understand that problems in one of these areas. So uh, really vocal uh, in our support for for a one health approach. Um, and again, just to summarize some of the other projects and. Some of the things are are going to happen for us. We're also engaging in the in the negotiations of the new Council of Europe um, convention on the protection of the environment through criminal law, and we're also um, implementing a very exciting project on uh, zoonotic disease prevention uh, in relation to wildlife trade in uh, Angola, Botswana, and Zambia. And this is a project that's kindly funded by JZ um, through the International Alliance Against Health Risks in Wildlife Trade. So we do have we do have a few exciting things happening um, in, in the coming months and years. Moving on towards your moving on to your own career. So you have worked with various organizations before joining the initiative. So mm-hmm. one of the projects you supported was the implementation of the EU funded swipe project. Could you just elaborate a bit about this? Sure. Um, so this white project is um, funded by the EU. It's called Life Swipe, and it's on the successful prosecution of wildlife crimes in Europe. And I was lucky enough, uh, and this is completely disconnected from my work from the Global Initiative, but I was uh, asked to support the implementation of this project in my home country, Italy. Um, I'm originally from Venice, so uh, and I have uh, an Italian law degree, so that was that was an exciting project for me. 
And um, so the, the project focuses on training uh, prosecutors, judges, and law enforcement in, in the field of wildlife crime. And as you know, um, it's, you know, the training, the specific training for these categories is incredibly important. But another thing that I think is just as important um, is bringing them together in the same room and building those connections and building that trust. So that um, that's what happened in, I believe, April of this year. Um, yeah, it, it must have been April. So we we had the Swipe um, Project Summit um, at the Italian level. So the first workshop of the uh, of the Swipe Project in Rome. And it was incredibly exciting because, uh, you know, my role was to help adapt the training material for prosecutor, law enforcement and, and judges to the Italian context. So I personally, my my contribution was taking the uh, sort of international training material and adapting it to the Italian context, both by translating it, but also really adapting to the to the legal context of Italy. Um, and in, in the context of that workshop that we we hosted in uh, in April, it was really exciting to see, you know, different um, departments of law enforcement come together, get to know each other for the first time, um, really build that trust that you need and those connections that you need to exchange information and ask for for advice um, because. Um, unfortunately, in Italy and elsewhere, this is still a crime area that's not well known. And there's not a whole lot of resources that uh, go into into combating and, and preventing it. So, yeah, that, that was the Zwei project. And uh, I did that um, uh, by supporting the, the legal team of WWF Italy. And again, a, a very exciting opportunity. You also worked with Legal Atlas to produce a number of publications. So could you talk about some of your prominent work with Legal Atlas? Yes, I'm very happy to, to talk about Legal Atlas anytime because uh, I, I think uh, it's such a fantastic platform and they, they do uh, such great um, great work. It was uh, funded by Jim Wingard, um, who we continue to work with. I've worked for Legal Atlas in the past by supporting some of their legal research and analysis, but we are continuing to work with Legal Atlas um, as the global initiative to end wildlife crime because we have a project um, in collaboration with Legal Atlas and another NGO uh, called the, the ICCF group. And uh, what that project is focusing, on, is focusing on and particularly what Legal Atlas is focusing on in, um, in the context that project is they are legal uh, Botswana and Zambia, so in the Kaza region, and they are conducting so-called gap analysis to see how the national legislation can be improved to prevent and control future uh, zoonotic outbreaks. Um, and again, this is really complementary work to uh, our second objective at the Global Initiative to, so our um, our a pandemic instrument objective. And yeah, Legal Atlas has noticed in previous research that uh, unfortunately most 
national laws when addressing, I don't want to say most, because I, I don't actually know if it's most, but uh, in many cases, national laws addressing zoonotic diseases mainly focus on livestock, not wildlife. And so uh, that's what we're trying to change. And those are the gaps that we're trying to fill. And uh, again, Legal Atlas is is really um, unique in that sense, because it's a it's a legal platform that um, collects and summarizes um, information and legislation from really all sorts of countries from all regions all over the world and makes it publicly available on their platform. So um, I would really advise um, anyone who has an interest in, in the law to, to go and check out the Legal Atlas website. So how can individuals contribute to tackling the illegal wildlife trade? Yeah, well, you know, this is probably the answer, the question that we get the most. And I, I find it challenging to, to give specific advice uh, sometimes because the illegal wildlife trade so often hides uh, behind um, the legal trade, right? And so with uh, species that are uh, strictly protected. So species that are listed under Appendix 1 of CITES, so for example, pangolins, uh, rhinos, etc. Um, it's it's easier to tell people not to purchase or, or consume those products. So for example, pangolin uh, scales or rhino horns. That's, um, that's an easier communication to do because you can tell people to simply avoid those products. And uh, coming from those those particularly protected species, there are um, there are particularly endangered. But with with other uh, appendices, I don't think it's as easy. Um, my best advice would be to when when purchasing, for example, exotic letters or um, products made from um, exotic wildlife wildlife products in general, stick to what's certified and ask for um, for the related documentation. So this, the site is uh, certificates so that you know that what you're, you're uh, buying is, is, is legal. Um, and same can be said for exotic pets. Although I will say, and I say this in my personal capacity it has nothing to do with, you know, my, my, my role as at the global initiative, but, but the exotic pet trade can be can be incredibly um, concerning from an animal welfare perspective as well. And so, um, again, at, at a very personal level, I would advise uh, that who whoever is interested in in, in buying uh, an exotic pet really think uh, thinks about that that choice and uh, ponders whether it's worth it because there are animal welfare um, implications as well as concerns. Uh, regarding where the animal could come from. Um, lastly, I would say support organizations um, that are fighting this 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 battle. And uh, you know, we we're certainly one of them, but there there are many organizations out there, especially you know at the at the national level that really tackle the you know um, country specific issues and country-specific species. Um, so there are there are really a number of organizations that are doing amazing work in that space. And I would uh, I would suggest that you do your best to support them. And my final question for this interview is that 
what has been your biggest learning from your conservation career in my career in general yeah well be patient um if you if you do have an interest in in uh, pursuing a career in wildlife conservation um it can be incredibly frustrating at the beginning because you know um there are few opportunities lots of people that want those opportunities and um i think if this is really your passion and this is what you want to do moving forward uh do your best to volunteer your time add those uh extra curricular um activities to your cv while you're studying university and really show that um you know you you're you're passionate about the topic and you're investing in the topic um and and really you know don't give up because i i have so many colleagues and friends in this field especially young professionals um you know i'm i'm 28 and i have many friends that are my similar ages and um it's been it's been tough for many of us to get into this field because um again it, it it can be a bit tricky to access, but don't give up. Um, I know that unfortunately doing a number of unpaid internships and volunteering positions can be can be really hard and not everyone can can do that realistically. Um, so, you know, on one hand, I hope there'll be more opportunities for young professionals in the future. And um, and on the other, I really advise that people interested in, in in working in this space don't give up and continue to pursue those opportunities. And obviously you're, you're welcome to reach out to me um, over on, on LinkedIn or other social media. I'm always happy to to chat with young people that, that, are, that are interested in pursuing a career in wildlife conservation. Thank you so much for your time today. It was really a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you, Anish. And again, thank you for all the work that you're doing. I am really grateful um, for, for the platform that you've built. And I'll continue to, to listen to your, to your future episodes. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe and share.